It'll be a three-man rush, eight in coverage, three in the end zone. Dalton heaves it down the right side toward the end zone. It is knocked up in the air. Oh, A.J. Green oh, makes the catch. Oh, 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 man. A deflected oh, ball winds oh, up in the hands God. of A.J. Green. The clock hits zero. Oh, 23-year-old Tony Pike waits for the snap. Has the football. Short drop. Lobs one down the sideline for Bins. He's got it. Touchdown. 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 And a high fly ball way back in center field. It is out right here. A grand slam home run for Joey Votto. And this one belongs to the Reds. Did your shirt on? And last I checked, I did. Yes, why? Now a steal by Gary Clark and a breakaway to the rim for a thunderous tomahawk jam. Get you one, big fella. Then a strike for Bertoni, and the magical moment belongs to Leonardo Bertoni. He opens the FC Cincinnati account with a goal in the 14th minute. Double dip on the ice cream cone. So tonight we have a very special guest. It took uh, a little bit of back and forth on Twitter, thanks to my co-host Ed here. And um, the Twitter gods. <laughs> but we have the voice of the Bearcats, the voice of your Cincinnati Bengals, Dan Horde. Dan, welcome to Pardon the Punctuation. Thanks for your time tonight. Aaron and Ed, I am honored to join the who's who that have uh, been on this podcast. So thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that's you. Honestly, I don't. I don't know if this is weird, but you were <laughs> one of the uh, the goals that we set when we started this podcast. So it's kind of a big deal for us to to have you on here. Um, you were among I mean, him and Mo. Pretty much him and Mo. Yeah. yeah. Well, I felt honored until it was me and Mo. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, that's great company to keep. So, again, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. So we'll kind of get into it, uh, talking a little bit about your background. I know I've read, you know, the athletic piece that was out on you. So I'm going to try not to do a whole lot of repeat questions for those of you in the audience who have also read the, ad- the athletic piece. But you went to Syracuse University. Are you from New York, correct? I am. I'm from Lakewood, New York, which is in the very southwest tip of New York State. So it's actually closer to Cincinnati than it is to New York City. When you're from New York State, people from outside of New York, as soon as they hear New York, they assume that you're from Manhattan and that I grew up in a skyscraper. But I grew up in the country. We had three and a half acres. We had two barns on our property. So uh, I'm much more of a Midwesterner, really, than I am a New Yorker. There you go. And then you came to Cincinnati in 1995 after doing some media stuff there in Syracuse, uh, and you joined Fox 19. So what was the move about? So I was working as a TV sports anchor in Syracuse at the CBS affiliate, and my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Peg, uh, was a TV news reporter. She started out in Syracuse, then she got a job in Rochester, New York, so we were about an hour and a half apart which was fine at that stage of our lives. And then she got a job at Channel 12 in Cincinnati, so I started looking for jobs in Cincinnati, and I applied to all the local TV stations, and I wasn't having much luck. And then I came to visit Peg on New Year's Eve. We went out to a party in Clifton, 
And at that party, I met the news director from Fox 19, a woman named Carla Stanley, and we hit it off over 7,000 beers that night. (laughs) And eventually, a few months later, she called me out of the blue and said, uh, one of our sports guys, Kevin Frazier, is leaving to go to Hollywood and become a superstar, and uh, how would you like to potentially replace him? So that's how I eventually wound up in Cincinnati. And then sometime between 1995 you transitioned into becoming the voice of the Bearcats for both football and basketball in 2000. So how did that transition come about? So when I got to Fox 19, they had the contract to broadcast Bearcat basketball games on TV back then. So any game that wasn't on network TV was on Fox 19. So it was typically 12 to 15 games a year, and I did – those Bearcat basketball games, and we also did the occasional UC football game one or two a year as part of that contract, but I always enjoyed doing play-by-play more than I enjoyed being a TV sports anchor or sports reporter. So when the radio play-by-play job became available, I decided I was going to try to transition in my career from being a local TV announcer into being a radio play-by-play man. So I applied for the job. I was offered the job, and I went to my boss, John Lawhead, at at Fox 19 and explained that I was getting out of TV to become a a radio play-by-play guy. And fortunately for me, he said, well, we don't want to lose you. How would you like to do both? So for several years, I continued to do the 10 o'clock news at Fox 19 while I was doing Bearcat basketball games on the radio. So that's kind of how I initially made that transition. And then many years after that, I just completely got out of the the TV anchoring game and became a play-by-play man full-time. Now, I would assume that your association with Fox 19 is how you transitioned into the Reds Fox Sports Ohio pregame show. Is that correct? Uh, Sort of. So I I had been a minor league baseball announcer when I first graduated from college, and really, growing up, that was my dream. I wanted to be a major league play-by-play announcer for the Mets, mostly as a kid, but really for any team. I just wanted to work for a baseball team doing play-by-play, whether it was on radio or TV. So when I came to Cincinnati, uh, there was a a situation where I think Joe Nuxall had to miss a few games and the Reds needed a fill-in. So I got my baseball tapes together and I applied to, to fill in on those games. And I wasn't chosen to do the games, but Jim Bowden, who was the uh, GM at the time, uh, got, in touch, got in touch with me after the fact and said, hey, I heard your tape. I thought you did a great job. Um, but if you would like to... Uh, do anything for the Reds, you probably need to work for WLW in some capacity. So that was another reason why I, I got into the uh, doing the Bearcat games on WLW. But it also began a relationship with the Reds where they were aware of the fact that I had this baseball dream. And when they started doing a pregame show prior to their telecasts on Fox Sports Ohio, uh, I was one of the original guys that was part of that pregame show. So it was Jim Day and myself and, and Jeff Pecoro, and obviously uh, Jim and Jeff are still doing it to this day. Uh, but that's how I got involved with that initially. I'm not going to lie. When I heard that Marty was retiring last year, I kind of wanted to start a small movement on Twitter to get you uh, to be the next broadcaster <laughs> of the Reds. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's nice of you to say. Um, uh, you know, part of me still has that baseball dream, but I also realize, <laughs> excuse me, 
that maybe uh, fate did me a favor because I have a 13-year-old son. Uh, if you're in the baseball world, it is really tough on the family life, oh, and yeah. I like the fact that when I do get time off, it's in the summer when my son's not in school. So uh, as much as I love baseball, maybe uh, I'm better off doing what I'm doing. That's awesome. Well, but you did get to at least fulfill a little bit of that baseball dream as you were the Pawtucket Red Sox announcer starting in 2006 until the NFL came and knocking. But what was that like getting to actually live your dream out for the, uh, the Red Sox there? Well, I've been a minor league baseball announcer in two different uh, periods of my life. I did it immediately after college. I was the voice of the AAA minor league team in Syracuse for a few years, the Blue Jays' top affiliate at the time. And then, as you mentioned, I went back and did it in Pawtucket uh, after my run at Fox 19. But quite honestly, when I did that job in Pawtucket, it wasn't so much the baseball dream as it was a family situation. I was working here in Cincinnati. My wife, Peg, got a job in Boston, uh, which was her dream. She wanted to be a TV news reporter in Boston. She got that opportunity, and and we discussed it. And I said, hey, if it was me, I would go if that was my dream job. So you need to take that job, and we'll figure the rest out. So we were living in separate cities for a, a period of a few years. We explained to our parents that it only needed to make sense to two people, uh, me and her. Uh, But we didn't have any children and decided that we wanted to try to have children. So once she got pregnant with our son, Sam, suddenly the two-city arrangement was no longer going to work. So we discussed whether she was going to come back here because of my job or if I would go there because of her job. And ultimately, I chose to go there, um, mostly for the family situation, but Because I was able to get that Pawtucket job, it did kind of put me back in the mix to potentially be a Major League Baseball announcer. So those are the two reasons why I uh, left for Pawtucket and and spent those five years in Boston. Makes sense. Now, one of the things I found intriguing was you were able to work it out with UC that you'd continue being the voice of the Bearcats even as you were living in Boston. So... What kind of strings did you have to pull to make that deal work? (laughs) Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm incredibly grateful that they worked that out because the way it came down was I took the job with the Paw Sox, and as I'm leaving Cincinnati to go to Pawtucket, I said to UC and to WLW, hey, I'm going to go be a, a baseball announcer in Boston, but I will still have basically the fall and the winter available if you want me to continue to broadcast the games, but if that's the case, you're going to have to find a way to get me to the games. I won't be living in Cincinnati. You would have to fly me back and forth. So they essentially said, we'll take it under consideration and we'll get back to you. So at some point, about a month into my first season with Pawtucket, I got a call from WLW saying, hey, we've enjoyed your work and you did a great job and we wish that you could continue to be the announcer but it's just not going to work out so there was a time period where I thought that my run as the UC announcer was over but maybe a month after that or six weeks after that I got a call from Mike Waddell who was the number two person on the totem pole in the UC athletic department at the time under AD Mike Thomas And Mike really was the person that figured out a way to work it out. He got together with WLW, and and they decided, okay, well, we'll pay for this portion of the travel, and you guys pay for that portion of it, and maybe we can get some trade to cover 
uh, some of it as well. So they managed to find a way to make it work, and uh, that was obviously great news for me. So I continued to do the UC games during the years that I was in Pawtucket, and uh, without that, I'm sure that I would have been out of sight and out of mind for the Bengals, and I would have never been offered that job. So that really was a lifesaver, and uh, I'll always be grateful to Mike Waddell for figuring out a way to make it work. I mean, it ended up leading you right into UC's Hall of Fame, which you just accepted that honor last year. So, I don't know. We, we've we always enjoyed Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, the years with, with the Bengals when, when we couldn't watch the games on TV, I just really enjoyed just turning on the game and listening to you and Lap. And and then when we, they did start showing them on TV again, I just started turning off the TV volume and just started listening to you guys while I watched it. <laughs> So the delay doesn't drive you bananas? Oh, a little bit, but it was worth it. (laughs) Well, Well, I tell people all the time because a lot of people will say, boy, I I really wish that the radio was synced up with the TV so that we could turn the sound down on the TV TV, uh, broadcasters and listen to you guys do the game on the radio. And I say, well, there's a false notion out there that the radio sound is ahead of the TV when, in fact... Lapham and I are just that good at anticipating the play. We're six seconds ahead of knowing what's going to happen, and obviously that's it. not true. But uh, some people, uh, it takes them a second to figure out that I'm joking. So we talked a little bit about uh, you being a Hall of Famer. Um, you're also a member of the Chautauqua Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, you became a member there in 2016. You're recognized as the Ohio Sportscaster of the Year in 2014 and 2017 by the National Sports Media Association. But the biggest accolade of all that I want to talk about is you became a Simpsons character. <laughs> yeah. I did. So in one of my, my minor league baseball broadcasting seasons, this was back in Syracuse, during the off-season, we got a tape in the mail. This is the back in the days of cassette recordings. We got a cassette recording in the mail from a guy named Ken Levine, basically explaining that he was a Hollywood screenwriter, that had always had a dream of being a baseball announcer. So he went to every game at Dodger Stadium the previous year. He got two season tickets. He sat in one. He put his tape recorder and his scorebook and stats and, and all of that kind of stuff in the other seat and he practiced doing baseball 81 times into a tape recorder so at the end of this year he put together an audition tape he sent it to every minor league team in the country and we got the the tape in syracuse and popped it in and as you could probably imagine it was hysterical he was a, a well-known <laughs> hollywood comedy writer he had done cheers and mash and and all sorts of highly successful shows so I was doing the games in Syracuse by myself at that time, and my boss said, geez, I wonder what this guy would be willing to work for. Clearly, he must be doing well financially with all these shows that he's worked for, so, so let's give him a call. So they called him, and basically money was no object. He, I think he got $1,000 a month to move his wife and two kids to Syracuse for a summer because he just wanted to do baseball. So we did games together for a year. We struck up a great friendship. And the year after that, he wrote an episode of The Simpsons where he wrote me in as the minor league baseball announcer. It's the Dance and Homer episode where Homer becomes the mascot at a minor league baseball uh, game. And you have Dan Horde, the uh, play-by-play announcer, in that episode. Now, did you get to do your own voice? I did not. Uh, But my friend, Ken, did. 
So the person who wrote me into the episode plays me, which was kind of cool. Do you have anything to commemorate that? Like any pictures of you as a character like a or photograph or something? Did they like make that? it in? Yeah. yeah, did they make it in your? Yeah, I or do. I have you know like a screen capture That's of cool. me uh, framed from that episode, and obviously I still have the recording. Uh, so yeah, it's it's great. And the funny thing is, now that was a long time ago. That was in season two of The Simpsons, and I think they're up to about thirty years now. Right, it's yep. been on forever. But it's, it plays in heavy rotation and syndication, so that episode will pop up uh, once or twice a year. And whenever it does, somebody will reach out to me and say, hey, I, I don't know if you know this, but I just heard your name on The Simpsons. And yeah, I, I'm actually aware that uh, that happened. That's fantastic. That is awesome. All right, switching it's gears. The, it's the one thing that my nieces and nephews have ever been impressed with. <laughs> I mean, the fact that there was a character name for me on The Simpsons. You win every party game with that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's for sure. That is hard to top, I will say that. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit, um, kind of going back to you being the voice of the Bearcats, you've seen your fair shares of ups and downs in both football and basketball since you've been around. I mean, you've been around since the year 2000, so this is what, your 21st season? 20th. 20th. This is my 20th, yep. It, it's hard to keep track because they start in one year, end in another <laughs> year. I never know. Right. He started in 2000. Well, did he start in the 99 season? <laughs> end of 2000. But, um, okay, so 20 years. So yep. in that 20 years, UC basketball has been good. It's been very good. It's even been great at times. Yep. We have made the tournament 15 years. You've seen four conference tournament championships, six conference championships, two Sweet 16s. You've seen four coaches, um, one of which is just kind of getting started here, one of which is incredibly forgettable, and then Bob Huggins and Mick Cronin, who they're legends here. Um, You've seen three different conferences, Conference USA, the Big East, and the American. You've seen Fifth Third completely transition from what it used to be to the palace that it is now. Beautiful. Um, you've seen yeah. your fair share of characters, just to name a few. Lance Stevenson, Field Williams, Tony <laughs> Bobbitt, Donald Little, Eric Hicks, Kenny Satterfield, James Flight White, Jason Magziel, Deontay Vaughn, Steve Logan, SK, Gary Clark, Jacob Evans, uh, now Jaron Cumberland. I mean, you've, you've had quite the ride here. I what, have. If you had to put it all into one word, how would you explain that 20 years of UC basketball? Wow. One word. <laughs> One word. Uh, memorable. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for, for not only because of all the great players you listed and the accomplishments that they've had during that time period, but there was a real roller coaster there as well. I, yeah. I, I started doing those games on Fox 19 when they were number one in the country. So I did probably 12 games Kenyon senior year on local TV when they were the best team in the country. And then I was also doing the games on the radio at the start of the rebuild when the fan base was ticked off because Hugs was forced out and, Mm -hmm. and Mick took over a team with one scholarship player in the, the big East when it was at its all time toughest. And now here we are after he rebuilt it. And then coach Brandon has come aboard and, you know, their perennial NCAA tournament team again. So just seeing that roller coaster ride and how they started at the top, they bottomed out. Now they're certainly back at least near the top, if not at the top. It, it has been very memorable. It's absolutely been nothing short of an adventure, even you know through my 35 years of life. Um, I, I've seen them, you know, 
from, like you said, the very bottom yeah. to the top. If Kenny Martin doesn't break his leg, we everyone the, would argue win that, that year. Yeah. <laughs> that's our year. But yes, it's. I mean, so right now, if we're looking at not looking at the history, but as of right now, this season itself has been a roller coaster. You started with the doldrums of fire John Brannon after his what some people would say um, they'd argue his hiring without even interviewing Nick Van Exel. Um, so then you have Jaron's injured. Jaron's not buying into the system. Maybe he's buying into the system. Who knows? And now all of a sudden we're possibly a tournament lock. It's been a crazy year. It has been a crazy year. Uh, did people really say fire John Brandon? Was that a thing? There was a the couple place. people on Twitter, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I heard from the, the fringe lunatics, but I never really thought that that was a legitimate thing. Uh, and I'm glad that nobody's saying that now. At least I hope nobody's saying that now, no. uh, because I think we are seeing that he is an excellent coach. And you know, the only reason, or at least the biggest reason, why they struggled early on was Jaron was hurt. And it takes time. One of the biggest things that stood out to me when I went to practice early this year is that this stuff is complicated. It's not the high school basketball that we played, where in a 2-3 zone, you stand there, that guy stands there, you move a little bit, or (laughs) if you're playing man-to-man defense, stay between your guy and the basket. The stuff they do at the college level now is so complicated, and it's completely different under Coach Brannon than it was under Coach Cronin. So there was a lot of learning involved early this season. And Mick went through the same thing at UCLA. Look how bad they were early on, and look how well they've played recently. It just takes time. So between Jaron's injury and that transition, they were bound to stumble early on, and it wasn't uh, easy to watch because they've been so consistently good in recent years, but it's completely understandable. And, uh, and now we're seeing that now that the guys understand the system and are used to playing with each other and, and Jaron is at least mostly healthy, they've become the team we thought they could be. Now, one of the things I read that I found probably most interesting is, like over the course of the season, to be completely honest, is that Trey Scott in early practices, and I think this is even before the season started, would be in Vote's ear like all the time after every play, trying to learn the system, trying to be the leader that we've seen him be, especially over the course of the last few games here. Um, what kind of things did you see in practice as you were there as an onlooker as far as leadership that Trey Scott has shown us on the court, but just kind of in practice and such? You know, he's one of the all-time best leaders they've ever had because he combines lead by example and lead vocally. A lot of times on a team, you've got one or the other. You know, Gary Clark, I would describe as a great leader, but more of a lead-by-example guy. Sean Kilpatrick was a very vocal guy. You generally don't get a guy who's off the charts in both categories, and Trey is off the charts in both categories. He's uh, indefatigable. He can run all day. He never, the motor never stops at practice. Uh, but he's really interested in trying to develop a great relationship with every guy on the roster and try to help that guy maximize his ability. So uh, he's unique in that regard. Uh, Coach Brandon has referred to him as the best leader he's been around, and I would certainly put him uh, near the top of anyone I've ever seen in my years at UC. 
and I found it really interesting that it was a couple weeks ago when Doris Burke was at the game that she mentioned that he she thinks that he might have NBA talent, which I don't think a lot of us have really talked about with Trey Scott um, around here. I think we talked about his leadership and, and how much he really picked us up last year, but I don't think we've really talked about him having that NBA talent, and I think that was really, really cool to hear. Yeah, that's interesting to hear because, you know, until a few weeks ago, I don't think Trey had ever displayed enough offensive ability for people to think that he was a great defensive player, he, he got his uh, garbage buckets and then could score four or five baskets a game, and then suddenly you had that stretch: twenty-five against UConn, twenty-five against Memphis, twenty-two points, twenty-one rebounds against USF, and it's like, who is this guy? Right, exactly. <laughs> I've never seen this before. So, will that make him an NBA player? I don't know about that. One thing I learned when Cincinnati was in the Big East at its most powerful was how hard it is to get to the NBA mm-hmm. because there were so many great players in that league back then. Hashim Thabit and all the guys that Syracuse had, Johnny Flynn and mm-hmm. others, and they got drafted high and then they would never stick in the NBA. And it just really underscored to me, man, it's hard to, to make it in that league because the guys that are good enough to make it never voluntarily go. I mean, they hang on, they work out year-round year round and hang on for dear life because it's such a great life, it's such a great accomplishment, it's so lucrative, and it, it's just really hard to make it in the NBA. Sean Kilpatrick's a perfect example. Yeah, exactly. You know, when he's played, he's played well, mm-hmm. and yet teams still won't keep him on their roster. So, you know, I'd love for Trayvon to play in the NBA. Maybe Doris is right, and it'll happen. Uh, but if not, he's certainly going to make a handsome living playing basketball somewhere. Absolutely. A couple last questions to wrap up basketball with you. Um, do you have a favorite season? Well, I would say Kenyon's senior year, even though I was only doing those, you know, the package of games on Fox 19 and, and wasn't at every road game and, and didn't see a lot of the games in person. But that team was so incredible. And if you go back the year before, Pete Michael was the star, mm-hmm. and Kenyon was the intimidator. But he wasn't a big offensive threat. The offense never ran through him. And going into their senior years, we all assumed, well, Pete Michael is the man, and hopefully Kenyon is a little better. Uh, I don't think anybody expected him to be the national <laughs> player of the year. But suddenly he showed up with this offensive game that he had not had the previous three years. And, and so now you've got the best player in the country. You might have the best two-way player in the country in Pete Michael. You've got an unbelievable freshman class with DeMar Johnson and Kenny Satterfield. You've got Steve Logan as maybe the best backup point guard in the history of college basketball. (laughs) Uh, You had great defensive players in Jermaine Tate and Ryan Fletcher. I mean, that team was so loaded. They were Noah's Ark. They had two of everything. And uh, if if Kenyon didn't break his leg... There's no way Michigan State wins the title. I mean, it was a great team. A team Cleves was great. Yeah. Tom Izzo is one of the best coaches ever. But Cincinnati was loaded, and that would have been a national championship year. Oh, what could have been? <laughs> yeah, I know it. It's hard to think back. Huh. Um, do you have a favorite player that – because you've admitted in things that I've read to that you can't help but become a fan even though you aren't originally from this area – Having spent so much time and committing so much of your your life to the University of Cincinnati, it's hard not to become a fan. Uh, we we get it. But um, do you have a favorite player 
that you've watched play? And then do you have a favorite player that you've talked to on the flip side of that coin? I have a lot, honestly. <laughs> I mean, every year there are a couple of guys that I just, you know, kind of fall in love with as a fan. My all-time player I enjoyed watching the most, I think might surprise some people, but it was Melvin Levitt. I just thought that Mel was the most entertaining college basketball player I've seen in a Cincinnati uniform since I've been around. Not the best, but the most entertaining. And obviously he was really, really good. He was uh, honorable mention or second-team All-American. I can't remember which, but he received some sort of uh, All-American honors. And then he was a great player. But beyond that, he was just an incredibly entertaining player. Uh, But, you know, I I loved watching SK, Gary Clark, Jaron, Trayvon Scott right now. The list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenyon that first year. So it, it's a long list. I hate to, to boil <laughs> yeah. it down to one or yeah, two. Yeah. Uh, but if I, if I had to pick out most entertaining, Melvin Levitt's my guy. Uh, what about the other part of that question uh, as far as talking to and like getting to interview or sit and practice with and just kind of pick his brain for uh, things to throw in as tidbits while you're doing the broadcast and such? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um, Sean Kilpatrick was really good in that category. Uh, Kyle Washington was tremendous. He enjoyed doing the the whole interview process. He would give you a lot of great material. Um, he did that. FK was was interesting though because he played at a prep school in New England when I was living and working in Boston doing the Pawtucket Red Sox game. So I was keeping an eye on his prep school schedule to see if I'd have an opportunity to go watch him play. So sure enough, a game pops up in Boston. So his team is going to come and play in a tournament in Boston. And it just so happened that that day was like the worst snowstorm of the year. (laughs) But I decide I'm going to swerve through the streets of Boston and try to make it to this gym and (laughs) hope that the the game is still on so i get there and sure enough they're still playing and they're like four people in the stands and i'm all excited to see this recruit sean kilpatrick and he was awful i mean he was terrible <laughs> and i'm thinking to myself good lord this is the guy that they're so high on he can't play at all so i, I sat down and talked to him afterward and obviously i didn't tell him that i thought he was awful but the conversation was great. And then I talked to his coach, and his coach said, hey, listen, I know he didn't play well today, but here's the deal. We played in a tournament in New York City last night. It ended at 11 p.m. We had this horrible bus ride trying to get here through the snow, and everybody's exhausted, and this is the one bad game he's had all year, and, and you happen to be here for it. Uh, so that made me feel a lot better about his uh, playing ability. And, and I just recognized from that first conversation I had that day that, he was going to be a fun guy to talk to, and, and that certainly turned out to be the case. Did That's you get awesome. to Did you get to share that story with him when he actually became a Bearcat at any point? I did, I did, <laughs> and uh, he remembered the game, <laughs> which was interesting. But you know, he al- he also remembered me showing up as one of about three people in the gym that day, and and I, I think he appreciated the fact that I did it, and we always had a great relationship from there on. That's fantastic. All right, so moving on to. Cincinnati football. Uh, Cincinnati football has been an even bigger roller coaster. There's been a ton of resets since you've been here in 2000. There's we, We've become a stepping stone school, and that's incredibly frustrating as a fan. <laughs> um, you've seen plenty of different 
eras, if you will. Um, you saw the end of the Rick Minter era. You saw the Mark D'Antonio era. Uh, you saw the Brian Kelly era, the Butch Jones era, the Tommy Tuberville era, and now the <laughs> Luke Fickle era. You've seen yeah. six conference championships, one divisional championship, uh, 15 bowl games. Seven of those bowl games were wins. Um, it's not always been fun to be a UC football fan, uh, so much so that they were actually giving out football tickets with uh, basketball season tickets at one point. You had to buy both of them. Um, yeah, you had to buy both when you bought one. Right. They, they weren't giving them out. You yeah. had to buy right. football yeah. in order to get basketball. Exactly. For a period there. Yep. Um, so you've seen way more ups and downs with football than you've seen with basketball even. Um, what's, what, what's it been like as a UC football announcer through all of this? Well, that was part of the fun in football because when I started doing the games, you never had the, the notion in your head that there would come a day where they could play in the Orange Bowl or the Sugar Bowl or be ranked third in the country right. or have an outside shot at playing for a national championship. So that rise was incredible to be attached to the program during. So that was really thrilling for me, and I say all the time, a lot of people ask me, what's the, the greatest game you've ever broadcast, and, and the answer to that is easy. It was the Pike to Bins game against Pitt in 2009, but maybe the, the most special moment of my broadcasting career was that Orange Bowl the year before, because I just remember being in the booth right as we're about to go on the air, and I look over to my longtime broadcast partner, Jim Kelly Jr., whose family has been associated uh, with UC football and UC sports for decades and decades through his dad, and it was such an emotional moment for him that the UC football team was playing in the Orange Bowl mm -hmm. that that really hit home for me, just how cool it was to have been part of that ride from not much local interest, not great recruiting, to suddenly a team that could play in a game of, of that magnitude. And by and large, the program has mostly been strong ever since. So uh, the timing uh, of being associated with, with UC football for me was perfect. That's an awesome story. Yeah, I've not heard that yeah, one. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, I don't even want to talk about the outcome of the, no, any of those bowl games. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Tebow, God, <laughs> playing with God on your side. <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> um, but you, you did bring up, you know, Jim Kelly being one of your, um, one of your co-hosts, along with uh, you've also worked with Paul Keels, Chuck Mayshock, Mo Egger, Terry Nelson, and obviously Lap with the Bengals. Um, yeah. I mean, I know we just kind of went through the loss of Chuck Mayshock here. Um, I don't really want to drudge up a whole lot of bad things there, but do you have a story that you haven't told on Chuck Mayshock anywhere? Because <laughs> we all know uh, he got gosh, ejected. I, you know, I don't know which stories you've heard. I've told <laughs> so many Chuck stories over the years in so many different places. Obviously, people know uh, the story of the uh, NCAA tournament ejection against Gonzaga <laughs> and uh, the the tip jar story is a, is a popular one. I don't know if you know that story or not, but th that's kind of a classic Go ahead uh, with that Chuck one. Mayshock story. I've not heard that one. I have not, no. You have not heard that one? <laughs> well, I, I kind of gave the punchline away, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try to tell it quickly. So, Chuck, one of the great things about 
Chuck is that he loved eating out at restaurants more than maybe anybody that I've ever met in my life. And the reason for it is actually kind of poignant. Chuck was one of ten kids growing up in Elyria, Ohio, near Cleveland. So when you're one of ten kids growing up in the 40s and 50s, you don't go out to dinner a lot. His father was uh, a referee. He did Big Ten games, uh, Big Ten football. He did a Rose Bowl game. His dad did as a college football official. But in any case, the Mayshock family was not going out to dinner regularly. Uh, so as an adult who did well for himself, Chuck loved to go out to eat. So wherever we would go on the road, Chuck was always really interested in, all right, where are we going to go to dinner tonight? And the thing about Chuck was he loved any meal. So it could be a nice restaurant, it could be a hamburger, it could be a hot dog, it didn't matter. He just liked going out to dinner. So one day we're getting ready to go to Hartford for a UC-UConn game, and my phone rings in the morning, and, and it's Chuck. And he generally began uh, our phone calls with something along the lines of, Hey, jackass! Uh, those are kind of the warm greetings that, uh, that I would get from him. Sometimes it was worse than that. But in any case... He calls, he goes, hey, jackass, you got the Internet at your house? Uh, yeah, Chuck, I've, uh, I've got the Internet at my house. Why do you ask? He's like, all right, go to East Coast Dogs. You got that? East Coast Dogs? Yeah, East Coast Dogs. And he hangs up. So I get on my computer, I look up East Coast Dogs, and East Coast Dogs turned out to be a gourmet hot dog restaurant in Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> Chuck loved hot dogs. So I call him back and I said, hey, East Coast Dogs, that looks good. We'll go to dinner there tonight. Great. Love it. Click. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we go to Hartford. We get to the team hotel. Thankfully, East Coast Dogs was, with, was within walking distance. So we walk there. We go in. We're the only people in the place. Um, there's a blackboard that has like a long list of gourmet hot dogs, different toppings, different types of dog, whatever. So I, I didn't want to try to, uh, you know, go up and down this list of a hundred hot dogs and toppings and try to figure it out. So I asked the guy behind the counter, Hey, uh, you know, I'm a first timer. Do you have any recommendations? And he says, I don't like hot dogs. So that was probably not the best recommendation you could get at East Coast Dogs. So in any case, I picked something out, Chuck picked something out, and uh, as it turned out, East Coast Dogs did not sell alcohol, but it was attached to a bar. So this surly guy behind the counter explained, if you want a soft drink, you get that here. If you want a beer, you just walk through that door to the bar, you can get one, and you can bring it back in here. So I decided I'm going to have a beer with my hot dog. Chuck didn't drink, so he was going to get a soft drink. So I go and get my beer. He gets a soft drink. We sit down. Now we're enjoying our hot dogs at East Coast Dogs, and, and actually it was pretty good. So at some point, as we're enjoying our hot dogs, Chuck says, Hey, you want to laugh your balls off? And uh, I said, Well, I mean, who doesn't want to do that, right? So he, he holds up his cup, his soft drink cup, and he twists it so that now I can see the other side of this cup. And on the other side of this cup are the words, tip jar. So Chuck 
in getting his soft drink, had accidentally picked up the tip jar cup from the counter and walked over to the self-serve Coke machine and used the tip jar to fill up his cup. So I was laughing, and then I said to him, is there any money in there? And he goes, I don't know. Let me find out. He he proceeds to guzzle down the rest of his Coke, not even grossed out by the potential of there being like a bunch of quarters and dollars and stuff under the ice. He swigs this thing down. Now he like shakes up the ice and looks, looks at the bottom and thankfully... There were no filthy coins down there. Uh, but ever, you know, from every day forward after that, I referred to him as Tip Jar Mayshock, and uh, that was another uh, a classic Chuck memory. That's, That's fantastic. Awesome. Um, <laughs> man, <laughs> it's not even easy to transition back to football. Yeah. Uh, well, finishing up with UC, we almost lost yeah. Luke Fickle. Um, I thought we were going to lose him this year. We, like I mentioned earlier, we've been a stepping stone school. So I'm kind of curious as to what your thoughts are on what it's going to take for Cincinnati to get out of this stepping stone mentality to where coaches basically come here to get a better job, essentially, um, and why you think Luke Fickle decided to stay. Because I honestly had – I thought he was gone. Well, I think he mostly decided to stay because he and his wife are the parents of six, and four of those kids are really young, and he doesn't want to uproot his family every few years to chase jobs. So I I think there's a very small list of schools that he would even consider, and I could be wrong about this, but my sense from being around him and talking to him over the last three years is that he's not going to venture very far away from the Midwest. His family's from Columbus. His wife's family is from Columbus. They've got a great support system with their big family. And there are a ton of cousins and aunts and uncles and and just people that they don't want to be half a country away from. Mm -hmm. So would he go to Ohio State if, if Ryan Day takes an NFL job sometime in the next few years? Sure. Would he go to Notre Dame if Brian Kelly... Uh, goes to the NFL or, or retires at some point. Yeah, I imagine so. And, and then there are probably a few other really good Midwestern jobs that he would have to think about, and, and Michigan State was on that list. Yeah. Uh, but the time wasn't right. Uh, the timing was bad. That The job came open basically right at signing day. So mm-hmm. he's been in the living rooms of these families, convincing them, trying, trying to get these kids to, to choose to play for him. And now... Days later, he's going to bolt for another job. It, it's just a, the timing wasn't right, and, and that's good for all of us. Um, yes. But he's going to continue to be wildly successful, and schools are going to continue to come after him, and we'll see. We'll see how much longer he stays. I hope it's for a long time. I think there's a chance that he'll stay for several more years because of the family situation. Uh, maybe he won't. I don't know. Uh, to get back to your original question, what's it going to take for yes. coaches to, to stay forever? Well, realistically, it's probably going to uh, require Cincinnati to be in a power conference. It's just impossible to, to pay what these other schools can pay. And you have a, at least a remote chance of playing for a national championship if you are outside of the Power Five, but everything has to fall perfectly. 
And, uh, you know, obviously that's not the case if you are in the Power Five. And if you are a coach as good as Luke Fickle is, you aspire to play for national championships. So my hope is that Cincinnati winds up in a Power Five conference sometime soon, or if not that, the college football playoff expands to eight teams with one of those spots going to a group of five school, which would then give you every year at least a legitimate path to play for a national championship. And I think if that's the case, it becomes a lot easier to keep somebody like Luke Fickle at Cincinnati, even if you're not in a Power Five conference. Well, I guess the only thing that I counter that with is just kind of wondering about the success that the American has had as opposed to some of the conferences in both football and basketball, like a Pac-12 or an ACC as the American arguably has been better than, than them in both sports. But not in the bottom line. So all of those other conferences, their TV contracts are such that they're paying their schools upwards of $30 million per school. And in the American, it's less than 10. So do the math. That's, That's annually. So over a very short period of time, these other schools have tremendous nest eggs, uh, from their TV contracts that you will never have outside of those schools. So it's strictly a financial thing. It has nothing to do with how good the leagues are. Uh, I, I agree that the American has become very good in both football and basketball, and it's the best conference that has both sports outside of the Power Five, but financially it just doesn't have an opportunity to compete. It's unfortunate. Yep. <laughs> I wanted a better answer. <laughs> uh, Finishing up with you being the voice of the Bengals. It's been heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. You got here in 2011 with the Bengals. You've seen five first-round losses. Uh, Most recently, Cincinnati's been painted with this whole national media Joe Burrow thing as a team that doesn't want to win when you can look at the statistics and they say otherwise. Uh, the national media apparently disregards that, including Dan Patrick, who is from Mason, Ohio. So what has your take been as you have a Bengals podcast yourself? You are obviously very invested both financially and just as a career with the Bengals. You had to be, have been frustrated with this as well, seeing the national media portray the Cincinnati Bengals as a team that simply doesn't want to win or doesn't care to win in this whole Joe Burrow sweepstakes. What are your thoughts on that? It's stupid. <laughs> and had, had that narrative gone, uh, been as prevalent as it's been in 1998, at the end of a decade where they really struggled, then it would have been harder to refute. I mean, we all know how horribly they played during that decade. But as you pointed out, they went to the playoffs my first five years. Mm-hmm. Since 2011, they're 13th in the NFL in wins. They are tied for 10th in playoff appearances, and they haven't won playoff games, so they have not accomplished what they're trying to accomplish, but they haven't been a laughingstock. I mean, really, throughout Marvin Lewis's tenure, the laughingstock days were over. They were consistently mm-hmm. in the mix in what I would argue would be the most competitive division over that entire time period in the NFL. So uh, I just scratch my head that people that 
I have some respect for, continue to trot that out like it's 1998 instead of 2020. It's, it's just dumb. But I guess you have to keep in mind that there's a lot of time to fill yeah. between yep. the Super Bowl and the draft. Yeah. And people have to talk about something. And once a storyline is established, if it's getting a lot of attention in one place, it's going to get a lot of attention in every place. So that's what's happened with the Joe Burrow doesn't want to play for the Bengals or Carson Palmer and Jordan Palmer are telling him he shouldn't want to play for the Bengals. <laughs> uh, there's no validity to it. Joe never said anything along those lines, but people had uh, a lot of time to fill, and that's what they went with. And even after Joe stood up at the Combine on Tuesday and more or less shot it down, some of those people are still sticking with their story and will continue to till the bitter end. So uh, I would say it's 99% likely that the Bengals are going to draft Joe on April 23rd. I think he's going to be great. Uh, my Super Bowl ring size is 10 and a half. <laughs> if the uh, Bengals want to include me when they uh, start having to uh, purchase them. So I- I'm looking forward to the Joe Burrow era very much. I would concur on all of the... I've yes. literally had those exact speaking points <laughs> in talking at work with people who like to pick my brain because I have a podcast. But um, no, I'm 100% with you as far as it's a slow time. I believe those start those stories started up the week of the uh, NBA All-Star Game when there's no NBA to even talk about. Um, NCAA basketball has been a little bit topsy-turvy to where everybody loses this year, so everybody's still in the mix. So you can't really talk about a player, a special player this year, like a Zion Williamson, a Jay Morant that we had last year. The NFL's not going on. Pitchers and catchers hadn't reported yet. There was literally nothing to talk about unless you want to talk about hockey, and good luck. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. Yeah, well, it really took off after Joe did his interview with Dan Patrick uh, the Friday before the Super Bowl on his radio show, and when asked if he would rather be the number one pick or, or play for a team that was contending for the championship, more or less said he wanted to do both. Well, duh. I mean, <laughs> isn't that obvious? Absolutely. Don't you want to go number one and play for a team that's going to contend for the championship? I would hope that's how he feels. Yep, exactly. uh, but because Carson Palmer had you know, said that he didn't think that the Bengals did everything they could to win Super Bowls while he was there. The fact that those comments sounded, you know, at least a tiny bit alike, reporters had their story and they were going to go with it. And as for Carson Palmer, I give this stat often because his whole thing drives me crazy. He left the Bengals uh, prior to the 2011 season. Mm -hmm. He played seven more NFL years with Oakland and with Arizona. During those seven years, the Bengals won more games than his teams won. They went to the playoffs five times. He went twice. So why are we considering his opinion to mean so much? I mean, what did he do that that warrants this status of the guru who's supposed to know everything? That's a fair point. Um, he, He was... A solid NFL player. It's unfortunate that Kimo von Allhoffen destroyed his knee, or he oh, won a, might have won a Super Bowl in Cincinnati. He might have won one in 2005. Uh, the team that knocked him out of the playoffs did win the Super Bowl that year. So, 
the, the fact that, that he's bad-mouthed the Bengals after walking out the door and quitting on the team doesn't sit well with me. I think he's absolutely jaded. Um, yeah. I'm with you there. But it is, at this point, unfortunately what it is. Um, <laughs> I did like to see that Jordan Palmer was out here saying nothing but good things about the Bengals today um, in the reports that I saw, and that he literally didn't have anything negative to say to Joe in regards to being drafted by Cincinnati. So hopefully that's... Yeah, I love that. And keep in mind that Jordan played for the Bengals too. Exactly. So it's not like he's just doing this to protect his uh, future business as a quarterback guru, but he spent three years in Cincinnati and then doesn't have any of those negative things to say. Loved all those things. So I'm going to ask you kind of the same questions here as we've kind of done uh, with Cincinnati just real quick here. But do you have a great Dave Lapham story? Because that dude's a character. He's like a cartoon yeah, I, I, on the Dave radio. Is awesome. um, even if you don't actually see him talking, you can see him talking <laughs> at all times. Um, so is there a great well, Dave Lapham story? I've got a bunch. I've got a that. bunch. Uh, one of my favorites was one of the first games we ever did together. Uh, one of the uh, opposing players took what Lap considered to be a cheap shot uh, at a Bengal, and Lap referred to him on the air as a turd, <laughs> which I had never heard a broadcaster use before. So uh, I-, I mentioned it in joking after the broadcast, and Lap kind of laughed and said, you know what's funny about that? In my first year as a Bengals announcer, when I was working with the legendary Phil Sims, I used the word turd. And Phil Samp said to him, how do you say, he said on the air, how do you spell that word, Dave? <laughs> and Lap said, well, you can spell it T-U-R-D or T-E-R-D. I think either one works. <laughs> and Phil Sam kind of chuckled and, and went on. And then they got to a commercial break, and, and Phil Sam said, Lap, it's been nice working with you, but I don't think you can say turd on the radio. And Lap said, then why did you ask me to spell it? <laughs> so uh, 30-some years later, when sufficiently ticked off, Lap will still use the word turd on the air. That's that is awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> um, following up on that, how do you keep a straight face working with that guy? Because honestly, I'm with you, Dan. I feel like I have my Dave Lapham here with Ed. If you ever do go back and listen to any of our podcasts, Oftentimes it is him offering kind of that color thing to me offering the facts and trying to get it up as far as like just the facts out and trying to just get the story out. But I'm wondering how you do it. I love him. That's how I do it. I mean, we spend a lot of time together during the football season, especially, but even in the off season, a decent amount around the draft and training camp and, and all of that stuff. And he makes every day fun. He's incredibly smart. He got admitted to Harvard, uh, but chose to go to the Harvard of Central New York, Syracuse, (laughs) instead, uh, because he wanted to play a a higher level of football than Harvard. So you begin with his smarts. He's maybe the best storyteller I've ever met in my life. And, you know, he's been doing this for a long time. He played for 10 years. He's been broadcasting more than 30. And he grinds. He is in there every day watching tapes, studying uh, stats, talking to every player in the locker room. I mean, he loves it. His passion obviously bursts through the radio every Sunday. So it's just, uh, it's really a treat just to be around him every day. Our desks are next to each other at Paul Brown Stadium. And it's an awesome way to spend 
every day of the football season, just uh, hanging out and being entertained. I love everything that you said. That was everything about that. Yes, I mean it was literally like <laughs> looking into a mirror as you're saying all these things. Um, that's that's awesome. So you also yeah, he's the best, and you know it's not even just just the Bengal stuff. I mean, he's a great husband, dad, grandfather. He's just an inspiring person to be around on a daily basis. So I can't say enough good things about Dave Lapham. Love that. Um, you guys also do the Bengals booth podcast together. And I believe at least I'm trying to do math, but according to Apple, your first episode is episode 30, but I'm assuming that's not your first episode. <laughs> so I'm assuming you started in 2017. Because you have 129 episodes. Yeah, that so sounds far. about right. Yep, okay. I, I think we started a couple of years ago. We do two, two a week during the season, one a week in the off season. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of uh, Bengals content on there, and uh, it, it's fun. I enjoy doing it. What are you most looking forward to about this season? Joe Burrow. Same. Like everybody right. else. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, the interesting thing for me is. I think since the playoff loss to the Steelers in 2015, Bengals fans have been ticked off. They were angry about that game. They were angry about how that season turned out when they were 8-0 at one point, 10-2, when Andy Dalton broke his thumb and it looked like the, the playoff drought had finally ended and then Hill fumbles and Perfect has his penalty and Pac-Man has his penalty and, and they give that game away to a, a team that, you know, everybody here despises. So they were ticked off about that. And then a lot of people thought that Marvin should have been let go at the end of that season, and he wasn't. So they were ticked off about that. And then the team hit a down period where they have not been back to the playoffs since. So they've been ticked off about that. And now I don't get the sense that they're ticked off anymore. They're excited about the possibility of having a franchise quarterback. And Getting back to what a lot of people have been saying about how this is the worst organization in the NFL and they, they conveniently forget the fact that they went to the playoffs six times in seven years, during the five-year stretch, Andy's first five years, when they went to the playoffs but didn't win in the first round, what was everybody saying back then? They were all saying, well, they're good but Andy isn't quite good enough to get him over the top. He's good enough to get you to the playoffs, but he's not elite enough to win postseason games or get you to the Super Bowl. And I think a lot of that was overblown. And in 2015, if he didn't break his thumb, I think he would have won at least one playoff game. But in any case, if you do buy into that notion that Andy was good, but not quite good enough to take you where you ultimately want to go, well... We think Joe Burrow could be. So that's energized people. I think there's, there's more excitement this time of the year for the Bengals than there's been in a long time. And it's unfortunate they had to go 2-14 and 14 to get there. But now that it's happened, let's turn the corner, let's get the right guy, and, and hopefully build a championship team. I don't think it can be worse, any worse no. than last year. <laughs> no way. <laughs> You're upgrading your line just simply by having Jonah back. Yeah, you're yeah, getting Joe in. Absolutely, it's like yep, two having first Jonah picks. back is going to hopefully fix left tackle for the next ten years. Yep, um, I was excited by the play of Fred Johnson, Agreed. who they signed off waivers from the Steelers. He started the last couple of games in left tackle and played really well. So hopefully he could bounce over to right tackle and, and fix that problem. And 
Trey Hopkins turned out to be, uh, I think, above average at least at center. So you've got the building blocks of what could, could turn out to be a pretty good line. Well, and if they actually flirt with free agents this year, as all reports are coming out, that you know, even Duke Tobin's out here saying that he's going to, um, that, that's huge for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, I think they are going to sign some free agents, and I think they are going to have the financial freedom to do it. I think Cordy Glenn will be let go. That frees up $9 bucks. I think Andy Dalton is likely to be traded. That would free up $17 bucks. So they're going to be in the position uh, to, to go out and get some help. All right, so last couple questions here. Favorite Bengal that you've ever watched play? I'm going to go with Chad Johnson. Um, I love AJ. <laughs> I love Joe Mixon. It's hard to, to pick somebody over them. But when, as, when I was at Fox 19, I was there just when Chad really blew up. And I, I don't know if you guys are even old enough to remember this, but we hired Chad, essentially, to come on our Sunday night show every week during the football season. It was called Chad's Corner, mm-hmm. and he was awesome. And he did it for a year for a very low fee basically and then the next year he really took off nationally cover of sports illustrated one of the most you know popular slash controversial figures in the nfl at the time and his agent got in touch with us and said hey uh you know chad enjoyed doing that thing on your tv station last year and and he's willing to do it again but uh that pittance that you pay to him is no longer going to cut it he wants x amount and it was probably, you know, ten times higher than what we had paid. So we said to Chad, you know, hey, listen, uh, it was awesome that you did our show, and we wish we could afford to have you on again, but there's just no way that we can, you know, sell the advertising to offset the fee that your agent asked for. And Chad said, oh, man, don't worry about that. I'll keep doing it for the original price. I like it. I, you know, you guys, you're grandfathered <laughs> in, essentially. So he kept doing this thing for years for peanuts, because we had put him on TV first. So uh, I'll, I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for Chad. Was it McDonald's awesome. gift cards? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't much more than that, trust me. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, and then who was your favorite Bengal to talk to? Adam Jones. Hmm. That's a shocker, right? Pac-Man Jones. I've heard that um, from uh, Pat McAfee as well. Yeah, so the thing about Adam Jones is he's incapable of not telling you how he feels. He's just unfiltered all the time. So, you know, unfortunately, sometimes that got him into trouble. But as somebody on the other side of the questions, it Mm -hmm. was awesome. And a lot of time it was not for broadcast. It was, you know, getting his honest opinion about something off the record in the locker room. And then sometimes it was on the record in interviews. But in either case, he was tremendous. Um, unfiltered guys are the best. Sometimes they shouldn't be. It's not always in their best <laughs> self-interest. Uh, but if you're the person asking the questions, it's great. Well, that's awesome. That's honestly, I think, about all we got tonight. Um, That's it. I (laughs) I just looked at the clock and realized we just went over by about 15 minutes. Yeah, it's been about an hour. So No worries. Um, Hopefully hopefully people enjoy listening to it. I tell you what, I've enjoyed – I don't care if anybody enjoys it or not. (laughs) (laughs) I've enjoyed picking your brain. I've enjoyed the stories. Um, 
no one tells a story like you, except for maybe Lap. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm yeah, still, Lap's got me beat. Trust me, Lap's the best. I mean, I don't know. You, you, we always don't like to hear ourselves talk, right? So yeah. there's something to that. Um, but no, I mean, this has been awesome. Really, really enjoyable. Like I said at the beginning of the hour, um, you've been somebody that we aspired to actually do this with, and it's been an honor and a pleasure to actually have you on our podcast. Well, thank you for asking, and uh, I enjoyed it, and hopefully the uh, audience does as well, and uh, maybe sometime uh, down the road we'll do part two. Sounds great. Well, this has been another episode of Pardon the Punctuation, so we thank you.